This word here, deceive, finds its root in a name that I know you know. Ever heard the name Jacob? Yeah? If your name is Jacob, sorry. My name is Jacob, Yahakov. It means to be a heel grabber. It speaks of in Genesis chapter 25 where Jacob and Esau were in the womb and, and Jacob, even in the womb, began to grab onto Esau's leg to usurp his position as the elder brother. That'll give you some peace the next time your kids are fighting outside of the womb to understand that there's some kids that fight in the womb. Hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another episode of the Live Church Canton podcast. My name is Sam. I'm the host. Thanks for listening. This week uh, is week number two of our series called Family Matters. This week, Pastor Daniel is bringing us a message called There's No Such Thing as a Perfect Family. And really, what Daniel keys in on in this message is the depravity of the human heart. That the human heart's natural inclination is to deceive us and that there are no perfect people because we're driven by something that isn't perfect. And we're all in need of God's direction. We're all in need of God's perfection. That's the only way that we can be made perfect. I think it's a really convicting message. Um, And I also just wanted to share with you guys, this weekend on Saturday night, we had an event called Trunk or Treat at the church that over a thousand people came and participated in. And if you're giving a life church, you're helping make that happen. And that's an event where people can encounter Jesus. So we just wanted to say thank you and thank you for um, partnering with us in that. Um, So here's Daniel. Here's the message. Enjoy. Well, last time that I was with you, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And the last time that I was with you, I asked you to continue to pray because we were looking for a home. And I asked you to pray because we were getting ready to get to closing. And a little things feel a little shaky at that time. But the Lord answered your prayers. We are moved in. And thank you for your prayer. Yeah, clap for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Come on now. You know I'm a recovering Baptist preacher, so you got to clap for me. Make me feel like I'm part of you. Um, But... I am super thankful for your prayers. I'm thankful for the people who um, moved us in. 20 folks, lovely folks from Life Church, met us at the house and uh, moved us in in 19 minutes. 19 minutes, even set up the sofa and set up the bed. The love in there was so thick that I thought they were going to divvy up the utility bills and stop paying them. I'll take you up on that if you want to. Uh, But I was super thankful uh, for that. That's gracious. And I thank everybody who's been coming to the house, people who brought meals, because you know we have a little baby as well. So we wanted to, yeah, we want to pack in all the stresses of life, relocation to a new context, to a new state, and a baby. We wanted to bring all that together, because if we start that way, it only goes up from here. Amen. All right. So we're thankful for that. We thank God for that. I want to thank everybody who, who's been caring for us, bringing food, flowers, um, love, checking in every time you see me in the lobby to pray with me, to ask me how family's doing. The staff here, the lead pastor, uh, the associate pastors. Man, I've been so grateful to everybody here, and I thank you. I look forward to getting to know you. And a special thanks to Rich and Sue Allen, who kept me in their house. Well, kept me. That sounds bad, because they're white, I'm black. That sounds a little bit. Um, they invited me over. <laughs> freely (laughs) of my own will I stayed um, at their house and um, and uh, they kept me (laughs) kept me (laughs) they they were they opened their hearts to me and their house to me for almost two months Uh, pro bono caring for me in the love of Jesus I know they get a little uh, embarrassed when I say that 
But um, just because you're embarrassed don't mean I haven't stopped thanking you. Because I thank you for what you've done. And it's huge. It's a blessing. And thank you. Well, I know I could spend hours thanking everybody. I'm not going to do that. Let's pay attention to God. Make sense? That's why we're here for God's word. If you would stand as we read God's word. We will be in Jeremiah chapter 17. We'll be in verse 9, verse 10, and verse 14. It's three verses. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you need some time, say slow your road. All right, it's on the board, I know. Okay, good. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct and according to what their deeds deserve. Verse 14, heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you, you alone are my praise. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you that eternal truths still matter today. We thank you, God, that you are not a God of yesteryear. You're not even a God of just the future. You're a present right now, God. We, we thank you that you speak even to our situations, even to our current plights now. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. We pray that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God to reveal the Son of God that we may see him, behold him, and encounter him, all to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. Last week, we started this series called Family Matters. Uh, Pastor Jared shared with you on a topic or a message called, It's Not Too Late for Your Family. The argument in that message was, although we are shaped and impacted by our family of origin, we don't have to be slaves to those pasts. He lets us know that although those things have molded us, especially the negative things that many of us come from poor backgrounds, and, and when I say poor, not financially alone, but morally poor, bankrupt background. For you, some of you, you may be the first person to know God in your family, but all of those experiences, he reminded us in Christ we have freedom. And in Christ, we don't have to relive those past pains or repeat those past patterns. We can learn from them and see what God has done. But whom the Son has set free is free yes, indeed. Yes. He reminded us of that, that though they, they shape us back then, Christ now is reshaping us to look more and more like him. So my job this morning, my hope, or this evening rather, my hope, is to share with you a part two of that message. As we go through this series, we have four parts, and this part has to do with what we like to refer to as the perfect family. Or better yet, there is no such thing as a perfect family. That's news to many of you. I know your family's perfect. You got everything figured out. But for me, this hits home. There's no such thing as a perfect family. There's no such thing. Look at our world today. Do you see anything perfect? Well, let's define terms for a minute, because I like to define terms. You'll hear me say that often, because I want to make sure we're working with the same deck of cards. Is that fair? When we say perfect, what do we mean? Some of us use that to say, hey, I had a Pepsi on a cold, on a hot day. Perfect. 
I understand that. What you're saying is that's good to you. It feels great. But when the dictionary defines perfect, it defines it particularly as something that is entirely without fault or defect. That sound like your family? No fault, no defect. Sound like your spouse? If you're beside her or him, please be quiet. (laughs) Or you will find out how imperfect your family could be this evening. (laughs) Entirely without fault, flawless. I love this part. Beyond any need of improvement. Now, we will never say that. But you know, and I know, if you've been married long enough or you've been in any relationship long enough, the other person tends to think they are flawless. Sometimes they do. And you have to, in God's way, in a loving way, remind them of how imperfect they are. Amen. And then you show how imperfect you are. But nobody's perfect. Nothing that we see in our world is perfect. There are no perfect governments. I know something they are. There are no perfect politicians. Something they are. There are no perfect churches because if they were, when I joined, they stopped being perfect. There are no perfect relationships. And there are no perfect families. Do you know why that is? Because there are no perfect people. Governments is filled with people. Politicians are people. Family has people. Churches have people. Relationships have people. What's the common denominator? People. There are no perfect people. Nothing in our word is perfect because there are no perfect people. I guess the question would be, why are there no perfect people? If that's your question, you're at the right place. If you have a different question, next sermon, we'll catch you. But there are no perfect people. Why? There are three observations that I see in this text that I'd like to bring your attention to. I think it'll help us understand why there are no perfect people. Because in order for these governments, these politicians, these families, and these churches, and these relationships to have some peace, we have to understand why humans do what they do. Three observations. The first thing that I see in this text is the condition of the human heart. The condition, the state of the human heart. Second thing that I see is the conclusion on the human heart. The verdict that God gives about this human heart. And not to leave you hanging, the cure or the correction for the human heart. Are you with me? The condition, the conclusion, and then the cure. Look with me, if you will, at our first observation, the condition. Verse 9 says it this way. He says that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Depending on your translation, it's beyond cure. And then the conclusion was then who can understand it? The condition of the heart here is introduced to us in what's called a verbless clause. There's no verbs in this. It is not intended to tell us that the heart does good things, but it just happens to be deceptive from time to time. It is intended to show us the state and the condition of the human heart. In other words, more than anything else means that more than anything else the heart does, its baseline is to deceive you. Now, I know that flies in the heart of our culture. It teaches us that people are just naturally good and they just need to be pointed to the right direction. Who are you going to believe, God or the culture? Because if people were very naturally good, if you looked around our world, 
Do you see naturally good people? Amen. You can talk back. Do you see the state of our union or disunion? Do you see the way the state of our world as a whole? The Bible says that the heart, the baseline of the heart is naturally deceptive. It seeks to deceive. It shows us that the heart, which is interesting because in our culture, the heart is usually the seat of your emotions, where your feelings come from. You know, when you're happy, you say, my heart's happy, or I have a happy heart, or my heart's merry. When you're sad, you will say, what? I have a broken heart. My heart is being torn. We look at the heart as this, this place where all of our feelings. Biblically, it's not that. When you read into the Bible those things, you, you miss the point of the text. The Bible speaks of the heart in the Jewish culture and in the Greek culture, Lev and Cardia, where we get the word cardiac arrest from. In the Greek, speak of the seat of your personality. It is decision central of your soul. It is where all your animation comes from. It is the impulse behind the impulse. You ever thought about the fact that you can think some vile things and you never really wanted to think those things? You ever thought about how thoughts just randomly come into your mind and you're like, where did that come from? One of my favorite preachers used to say, before he would preach, sometimes some of the most disgusting thoughts will come to his mind. You ever felt powerless by the thoughts that come in and out of your mind? Because you've been taught to think that the heart is, this, is, is your feelings. But the Bible says, no, it's, it's the seat of your personality where all your will and all your actions come from. It is your subconscious. This is what some of these psychologists, Sigmund Freud and all this were after. It is that place that you can't see but seems to control everything that you can see. This is why the Bible encourages us to guard the heart. It says guard it, look diligently upon it, be circumspect of this heart because out of it flows all of the evils of life. Everything that we are is found in the seat of our personality, decision central, central command of your being. It says guard it because out of it flows the issues of life. It says it's more than because it's always looking to deceive. But when we talk about deceive, what do we mean? This word here, deceive, finds its root in a name that I know you know. Ever heard the name Jacob? Yeah? If your name is Jacob, sorry. <laughs> My name is Jacob, Yahakov. It means to be a heel grabber. It, it, it speaks of in Genesis chapter 25 where Jacob and Esau were in the womb, and, and Jacob, even in the womb, began to grab onto Esau's leg to usurp his position as the elder brother. That'll give you some peace the next time your kids are fighting outside of the womb to understand that there's some kids that fight in the womb. But because the natural inclination of the heart is to supplant authority. You know, people talk about kids that have opposition dis disorders and all this other stuff. We all have it. We all struggle with authority in some way, shape, or form, whether it's authority of parents when we're growing or whether it's authority of God who made our parents. It is deceptive. It's a heel grabber. It keeps you, it pulls you, it, it, it causes you to not grow as God would cause you to. Heart is deceptive. 
It's beyond all things. This natural state of the human heart is to be deceptive. The heart is naturally crooked, so don't be surprised if it never shoots straight. Do not be surprised at the things that flow in and out of your mind because we have been taught by our culture to follow your heart, to follow the very thing who the maker of our soul says is naturally deceptive. That's a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe. You know, we look at these movies, these romantic novels that glorify affairs, right? They, they, they couch it as, oh, he or she is only looking to find their soulmate. Oh, he or she is on their second marriage. They're trying to find themselves without any mention of the destruction that comes from adultery. If you've ever seen a family go through that, especially with kids, you will see the gut-wrenching pain that people go through. We are sold fantasies. We're told that it will be all happily ever after, forgetting the fact that almost 90% of all those affairs also end up in affairs. You know the funny thing about the human mind? I lie to myself that if you would cheat with me, you won't cheat on me. Amen. I lie to myself that if we steal together, that you will never steal from me. I lie to myself that if you talk bad about others to me, you won't talk bad about me to others. I'm self-deceived. You know, it's often said that if you put people around good people, then, then we'll all... We'll all be good people. Well, if the, if, the, if, the, if the verdict of the Bible is that there are no good people, how's that going to work? If I'm by myself in a cave somewhere in Uganda, I will still be sinful because the sin is not outside, it's within. Deception of the heart. Why is this heart then deceptive? The next verse says that it is incurably sick. It's beyond cure. Well, how is it sick? What is it sick from? From sin. This is the doctrine of depravity. Not that you and I are as bad as we can be, but every one of our faculties has been tainted and corrupted by sin. Not that we are all evil, but that every part of who I am, my relational peace, my volitional peace, my emotional peace has all been marred by sin. Has all been touched by it. I can talk myself into more sins than anybody else. I can justify these things easily with my own mind. That's my mind. Paul says it this way, because I think there's a, there's a tendency to believe that this is the condition of the unbeliever and that if you come to Christ, you ought not to have these wars within you. Paul, the apostle, the preacher of preachers, the pastor of pastors in Romans chapter 7 says it this way. Verse 18, he says, For I know that there dwells nothing good in me, in my flesh. Now, Paul uses the word flesh to refer to his natural nature. It says, in my natural nature, I, the apostle who shared the gospel with millions, who by his letters, some of us are saved even now. The man who was following God, who was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. That Paul says, even in his own being, 
he sees that there's nothing good that dwells in his natural nature apart from God. He says, because I want to do good. He said, the willing is present, but the doing is not there. Think about the best self that you've ever thought about. Have you ever been that person? The best picture of yourself that you have, the loving, kind, generous, always caring for people, the, 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 the wise wisdom, the never being fooled self, the, the great picture you have of yourself. Have you ever been able to accomplish that? He says that because there's a willingness there, I want to do what's good. I lack the power to do what's good. You know, if you've ever gone through any addiction, whether it's pornography or, or alcohol or whatever else you've gone through, you, you know what it's like to feel like you have no power to overcome this. The Bible says that's not just germane to those who are in recovery, but that's germane to all of human beings. That there is a willingness that God puts in there when you are saved, that even when you are saved, you find it hard to please God. To do what God has called you to, because God calls you not only to love others as you love yourself, but to actually love others more than you love yourself. Folks, that's hard to do. Paul goes further and says, for the good that I want to do, I do not do. I keep on practicing the evil. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want to do, then it's longer, no longer me who's doing it, but sin that lives within me. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This isn't a, a discussion about, you know, I don't know how old you are, but if, you, if you've been around for a little bit, you know Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You remember that? Devil made me do it and blaming it on devil. This is not to say that you are devoid of, of a responsibility, but it is to say that it puts you in a place where you are, God, I can't trust my own mind. I need you to fix me. Paul later on says, I find then that there's a principle that is evil inside of me, the very one who wants to do good. Because he says here, I concur, I agree with God's law. I agree with the truth of God in my inner man, in his spirit being, in his reborn, born again self. He says, I agree, but I see a different law. I see two things fighting against me. I see me fighting against me in my own mind. I see that I am divided and I cannot come together. As a mental health professional, I think often about schizophrenia when I see this passage. Of how you feel on some level that it's two of you or maybe three of you. Maybe your mind is fractured, which is where the word schizo means. It means a fractured mind. This is not the condition of just one or two of us. The Bible says this is the condition of the man or the woman apart from God. It's hard to hear. I know. Paul hands and says in verse 24, O wretched man, who will set me free from this body of death? Who will set me free from my own mind that commends sin to me and then convicts me of that same sin. That tells me to enjoy those things that are not right. But then when I do, now condemns me internally. Jeremiah ends this way. Back to verse 9. He says, if the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, then where is the hope? I can't trust me, I can't trust you. 
Even if I love you, I've got to check and see, am I loving you selfishly or am I loving you selflessly? Do I love you because you make me happy or am I loving you for your happiness? You see, that's the entry to the gospel. He didn't come to save you because it made him feel better. He came to save you because it was better for you. The gospel is not God coming because he needs something. I love the way Steve said it earlier. God needs nothing. Need is a creature thing. If you're the creator of everything, you don't need anything. Now, he wants you, but doesn't need us. You know how joyful that is? Psychologically, they might call that codependency, where you need the other person in order to survive in certain situations, or you have a relationship that is tethered to each other that is unsafe. But the gospel is that God doesn't need us, but wants us, and doesn't just wants us, brings us in and makes us better than we were without him. The gospel is that God goes after those who don't like him, don't want him, don't hate him to make them better so that they can see the goodness of who he is. The gospel is central to all that we are. So the conclusion that Jeremiah reaches is that how can I understand this heart? How can, who can understand this heart? Because the heart is innately deceptive and incurably depraved, then who can understand it? I can't rely on my own eyes. I can't rely on my own feelings because they lead me wrong and they are selfish. The world continues to remind us that we are meant to trust our own hearts. Whether it's The Bachelor, whether it's any program that we watch that puts in us a, I was talking to one of my sisters the other day who, who's a staff member here, and she said, I stopped reading romantic novels because they create for me a fantasy that doesn't exist. I'm not intending to say you can't read what you want. If you have the freedom in Christ, you can do that. I'm saying be careful of what you put in because the nature of the heart is to take that and warp it. Then there are three questions that I think it's important. Three questions that I want you to think about. And you already know the answers to these, but I want you to think through these questions. If my heart is impossible to discern, then who can understand it? If my heart is impossible to understand, to comprehend, then who is the one that can understand it? If my heart then is incurable, incurably damaged, beyond cure, who can heal it? Where is the healing found? He said, preacher, man, you're giving me all kinds of bad news. I came here for Halloween outside, but not Halloween inside. <laughs> but if the heart is deceitful, if it's impossible to understand, and if it's damaged, who is the healer, who is the savior, and who is the one that discerns it? Here's our third uh, observation, the cure. The cure for the human heart. The cure is, of course, God. He's the answer to the three questions. Jeremiah says it like this in verse 10. He says, I, the Lord, God speaks to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is dumbfounded at the, at the, at the future of his people. It's a bleak future that he paints when he sees the, the decay of the human heart. He says, who can understand it? And God responds to him and says, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways. 
Interesting that a little later that Jeremiah hears that. It gives him comfort, but it also convicts him. Because he says, I know some of the things that's going on in my own heart. And if you're the only one that truly could dissect and fully understand the mind, I'm afraid that you know everything. Even the things that are buried in my subconscious. That is a level of comfort because there is someone who can understand. But it's also painful and convicting because there is one who has all of our life in front of him in HD. Blu-ray, whatever it is, the clearest picture and can see the beginning from the end. Jeremiah then enters into prayer. But practically for you and for me, without waiting for God to speak to us audibly, how has God spoken? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 gives us that answer. Look with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter 4. If you're there, I'll read through it. Hebrews chapter 4 says it this way. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce through the soul into the spirit. It's able to go beyond the joints and the marrow to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart. Verse 13 says it this way. And there is no creature that is hidden from the sight of God because everything is naked before him. And he's the final judge that we must all give an account to. Beyond reaching out to counselors, that's good. Beyond reaching out to professionals who can help us as we go through things in our hearts and mind, that's good. But if all of humankind struggles with the natural condition of the heart being deceptive, they also have that. There is a reason why counselors also have counselors, and they have counselors. But at some point, you run out of counselors. Enters the wonderful counselor, Jesus, who can see the problem, dissect the root of the problem. Doesn't have to seat you on a couch and say, tell me about your childhood. I was there. I was watching you, molding you, even from your mother's womb. I've known you more than you've known yourself. When you came to me, that was your first encounter, but that was not the first time I met you. I knitted you in the womb, gave you your name, gave you your quirks. And when you come back home, you think it's the first time, but you've been here before. You're just coming back home. For many of us, we're just coming back home. He says we must give account. Second question is answered. God is the only one who can heal our damaged heart, and he's the only one that can save us from the deception. Look in verse 14. Jeremiah cries this prayer and says, Lord, heal me, and then I will be healed. Save me, and then I will be saved. Because only you are worthy of my time. Only you are worthy of my praise. There it is, folks. The condition of the heart, the conclusion on that heart, condition is being innately deceptive and incurably damaged. And the conclusion that we come to when we hear that is, who in the world, who can save us from this? Who can understand the heart, who can get behind it to the seat of our personality, the seat of all of who we are, and get to the core of it and remove that cancer that is called sin? And the answer is God can. 
God does and God can. You know why the family of origin is so impactful on who we are? Because they're broken too. We are broken people who are trying to help other broken people. We are connected with other broken people. Guess what broken people do well? Break. Let's pray. Stand up if you will. Maybe you are here. And you're an unbeliever. And you are trusting in that same mind. That same deceptive mind to take you into salvation. You believe that there is no God because your mind has informed you of that. If the testimony of scripture is true, that the heart is deceptive above all things, how can you trust that mind? Many of you are in the automotive industry and you understand the folly of using the manufacturer's manual from a different company on a different car. You understand the folly of going by different plans for one car when it doesn't belong to them. Similarly, you can draw the comparison of what it looks like to go to everybody but God, the person who made you, the person who molded you to understand you. I would ask you, take a good look at yourself. Ask the question, is my mind solid? A secular person, Socrates, says, I'm the wisest man on earth. Why? Because I know that I know nothing. Because I know that anything that I could be so absolute about is tainted with this mind. This mind that is imperfect and merely trying to gather enough information to make the right decision. I would like to encourage you to seek the Lord. Even now, pray to him. Seek his face that he would heal you. He would heal us from the deception of our minds. Maybe you're a believer. Even more, even more so, maybe you are a believer that's currently struggling. Because i got news for you, we all struggle in different ways. Maybe you feel that as a believer, I ought not to be going through these things. I pray that it gives you some peace to know that Paul, the apostle, struggled with sin himself. And he kept on entrusting himself to God the only person that he knew had the remedy for his disease. The only person he knew that could save him from himself. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And the answer is God will. God does. God is still in the saving business. Because there's coming a time where we have to give an account. And will it be a mind told me that I didn't need to trust in you? Or will you say, I trusted my mind to you because you made it in the first place. Ever before it was marred, ever before sin came into the world, there was us and God in the garden in bliss. Come back home. Rest in his truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your truth and your word. We thank you that you are awesome and that you are perfect in all things. And that even as we seek to see and understand this world and look around us and find all kinds of imperfections and see all kinds of imperfections, oh, we thank you that there is one who is perfect. There's one who died for us and gave us new life in him. There's one who caused us to know his truth 
and his name is Jesus, Yeshua, the King of all kings, the Savior of the world, the plan A, because there are no plan Bs, and we give you honor, we give you glory, and we surrender to you even now. We bring our world into your hands. We, we surrender even our nation into your hands. Disunited, disconnected, because we are first disconnected from you. Bring us to you, Lord, that we may be united in your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, text I'm New to 734 349 3475 or fill out the form linked in the show notes below and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you came to Life Church for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcanton.org. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with someone and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton podcast. Have a great week, everybody.